Good evening, everyone. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to a Minor Detail Radio on blogtalkradio.com, and I am your host. Every Sunday night, I'm here live at 9 o'clock, and tonight, I have an interview with congressional candidate Aruna Miller. She's a Democrat running to succeed John Delaney in Maryland's 6th Congressional District. Aruna and I recorded an interview yesterday morning, and here is that interview. Today I had the distinct pleasure of having with me State Delegate Aruna Miller, and she is running for the 6th Congressional District. And where I live, where she lives, right down the road from me in Darnstown, I live here in North Potomac, and I want to welcome Delegate Miller. Thank you so much for, for coming on on this Saturday morning. And as I told the audience, um, Delegate Miller, that we're pre-recording and it's going to broadcast live tomorrow. So thank you for, for joining us this morning. Oh, you're very welcome, Ryan. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. And uh, foremost, congratulations to you and Kim on tying oh. the knot recently. Well, thank you. Yeah, we, we, we did that last Saturday, and I'm getting text messages from friends and people who see me out and about already. They're like, why aren't you on a honeymoon? And I said, well, you know, we're going to wait till the summer to do that. And I remember your husband, David, when we were talking uh, a couple months back, he's like, Ryan, you have to take a honeymoon. He's like, just go, or or else it's going to take 10 years to do it. Um, so I... Uh, I will take his advice seriously, and I promise you we will take our honeymoon uh, this 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 summer. I, and we just got to figure out where we're going, Aruna. We have no idea. Maybe Garrett County. Oh, God, that would be a beautiful place to go. Lovely, <laughs> the, lovely choice. <laughs> the, the lake, right? Yeah. Oh, lake, yeah, so. Deep Creek Lake, yep. There you, you go. So today um, – as I as I told you, we're going to go ahead and kick off this interview, and it's it's a pleasure um, to have you because it's it's rare that I get to interview congressional candidates like yourself, and it's exciting not only because you're running for Congress, and this is a great year not only for Democrats but for women. I mean, I think 2018 is the year of where women are coming out strong and stepping up and saying that it's it's our time, and I I believe that fundamentally. But you are also my state delegate here in District 15, and that's that's a real privilege. And I'll and I'm going to say this incidentally that any time that I've ever had a constituent issue, um, Delegate Miller, you have rushed. I mean that sincerely that you have helped me so much on uh, a couple of issues, and you've always made the time to sit down with me and thoroughly discuss an issue. And there's never been a time where if I you know I talk to your office, you're on the phone within a half an hour. That speaks to not only your customer service, but just the, the passion that you have to serve your constituents. And, and I mean that. I sincerely mean how important that is as you move up into a congressional seat, that if you're elected, um, that you know, customer service is what it's really all about, in these, and especially for the district. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, Ryan. I think, you know, being a public servant is that I serve the public. That means I have to be available for them 24-7. That's always been my motto. That's how I was trained as an engineer working for Montgomery County Department of Transportation, that I should be accessible all the time to the constituents and the people I serve. Yeah, I agree. And you've you've done exceptionally well, and I want to I want to talk first about your narrative. You have a uniquely American story that I believe so many people 
in the 6th District can relate to um, and others around the country. And as an immigrant yourself, you came to the United States of America when you were a young girl. You left India, and then you you, you and your family um, set up shop over here in the United States. And when you came to America, you didn't know any English. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I want you to just talk briefly about your narrative and about how you arrived here, what it was like as an immigrant, and what it was like for your family when they first decided to to move to the United States. Sure. Well, make no mistake, it was the policies of the United States that allowed my family and me to come to the United States, Ryan. So the policies that initially started in 1964 with the civil rights uh, movement, right? Black activists that were tortured, beaten, hosed to fight for our civil rights that you and I enjoy today. Um, That act immediately led to what was called the Immigration Act of 1965, because the Johnson administration looked around and said, wow, here we, here we are as a country. We made some great progress to uh, minimize discrimination in our country and the racial segregation that existed before, but it's only up to the borders. We need to look beyond that. So the Immigration Act of 1965 lifted the racial quotas and allowed a new generation of people to come to America and call it their home. People coming from areas of Africa, Asia, Central America. And it was a result of that that my family and I were able to come to the United States. So my father came around 1965, I believe, um, 1966 in that Um, time period. He was a mechanical engineer, and he worked for IBM in Poughkeepsie, New York. My father couldn't afford to bring each, uh, you know, the entire family at one time, so he brought my mom, then my brother, then my sister, and I was the last to arrive. I'm the youngest of three kids. I arrived in 1972 when I was seven years old, and as you said, I didn't know a word of English when I came here. And um, I can still remember You know, this is a story I often share because it did have a very profound impact on who I am today. I remember going to my first day of school and walking into the classroom and feeling so uncomfortable because nobody looked like me. I couldn't communicate with anyone. I felt so isolated. Um, At lunchtime, um, you know, all the kids went to the cafeteria and I did whatever I saw all the kids doing. And when I got back to class, um, what I had done at lunchtime was I drank cold milk for the first time in my life. And I guess my body didn't agree with that, so I came back to class and proceeded to vomit all over the desk. And you could imagine how mortified I felt. You know, great, let me stand out even more in the classroom as if I didn't already stand out enough. And, of course, I was hysterical and crying. My mom had to pick me up, and I went home, and it was a terrible experience. Um, But by the end of the day, Ryan, one of my classmates had come to our home, knocked on the door, and when I opened it, she had a whole bunch of paintings that all the kids in the classroom had made for me with little smiley faces and hearts and whatnot. So that experience was that, Here was an educator, a teacher, who understood the isolation that I felt and taught the kids empathy. She made them all sit down, 
make these paintings so I felt like I belonged there. And I believe empathy, Ryan, is one of the most important human traits that we can have, whether no matter what the job is that you're doing, but particularly as a legislator who represents people. Because I'll never be able to go through all the experience and struggles and challenges people that I come across have been through. But if I have empathy for what they're going through, my heart, my you know, uh, experience can reach out and help them to you know, overcome these barriers and challenges. So that's what I was taught from that experience. And I've never forgotten that moment. And that's the trait that I take with me everywhere I go. And what a testimonial to our public school system. I mean, as a publicly, I was educated in our public schools as well up in Western Maryland. I grew up in Hagerstown and the part of the district that uh, you would represent. And I was very lucky to um, to come from a, you know, a middle class family, and we you know we all have our struggles. But I was I wouldn't be where I am today without Washington County Public Schools and the teachers that I had. And it sounds, you know, when you came into the public school system not knowing any English and then just retelling that experience, uh, it, that's why we all look at our school system and say, this is the way of upward mobility in the United States. That is why we put so much, we put so much into ensuring that our public school system is the very best, not only in the country, but around the world. So I, that is just a, to me, your story is just so profoundly and uniquely American about, you know, it's just, it's, so it's, it's, it's touching. Uh, you know, and you're absolutely right, Ryan. I mean, I am so grateful for every public educator that, you know, starting with th- that particular teacher who made me feel like I belong, helped me to assimilate into the new world. And like you said, educate us and they touch every one of our lives. You can, you know, identify one individual in our country that hasn't been touched by the actions and the involvement of an educator. Yeah, exactly. And so, and then once you, once you got acclimated into the United States, if that's the right word, and and, <laughs> and got your foot, um, you, you you said you, and on your website you said you quickly adapted to the new world. And then when you were a senior in high school, your dad faced a health crisis and mm-hmm. lost his job. Again, this it, it's such a, a story that resonates with so many Americans um, and on so many fronts. People, they get sick, they lose their health, they lose their job, they may even lose their health care based on losing their job, and that leaves a family of three struggling, and that's that just sounds so much, so many stories that I've I've heard. And then you said you got a job at a fast food restaurant. I'm just curious, which one? <laughs> okay, so I um, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, in the suburbs. So there was a, um, I think the name of the place was called Noggles. It was a Mexican <laughs> fast food restaurant, and okay. uh, that's where I worked um, to earn some money so I could, you know, go to college. You know, but more importantly, I think um, this is a typical American story, Ryan. Um, you know, people go through life, and again, you face challenges and obstacles, and you don't know when that rug is going to be pulled out from under your feet, and no fault of your own. And this wasn't my dad's fault either. He was faced with a health condition, um, you know, couldn't cope with it, ended up losing his job. So what do you do? 
Well, that's where the great policies of our country step in and try to help people. It's the safety nets that we create so, you know, so people can get back on their feet and continue to pursue the American dream, that it doesn't just stop because by chance something happened and then, you know, we're just like, okay, well, you've got to figure that out on your own. No, we're all collectively here together to help one another. I mean, that's essential to our democracy, that it's about everybody coming together to lift the boat so we all rise, you know, or, you know, that's what it's about. The, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, right? That's right. And you mentioned, you said a safety net, and that's exactly what our country was built on. And mm -hmm. we have that structure in place to ensure that when Americans fall on hard times, that it picks us back up and we move forward. And nobody, you know, I often hear my other friends on the Republican side say that all oh, the safety net is so abused, we have to, to dwindle it down. And, it, and it's like, well, hold on a second. I, I can hear, I hear them when they say that it, there, there, there needs to be reform and we should look at all programs that are taxpayer funded. But to wipe out an, an entire safety system, that's just not what our country was it's just not what our, our country was built on. And when people, they tap into that, they use it, and then they get back on their feet. And I've seen so many success stories where people who were using assistance or had fallen on hard times and taken um, some state assistance or, uh, and, and whatnot, they have risen up and started major companies, Fortune 500 companies. They have d built mega businesses and then went on to hire thousands of people that's the story that America that needs to be told, and that's why, Delegate Miller, I fundamentally reject what this president is selling. That's why that this his values, and I believe this deep in my heart. As someone who was a, a former Republican, uh, I can tell you that is not what our country is about, and I think that's why you're seeing candidates just like yourself say, nope, this is not the country that we know, and we are better than that. We are so much better than that. You're absolutely right, Ryan. We are so much better than that. And that's why I think it's very important that our elected representatives be representative of a community um, that's diverse, right? It's not about electing the same people over and over again. We need to bring diversity from different professional backgrounds, different walks of life that individuals have endured, uh, different gender, different ethnicities. I think this is how you're able to we as a nation will be able to solve the complex challenges that we are facing right now. It's right. to throw that net out as broadly as possible, attract new candidates to run for office who are reflective of the changing demographics of our nation. Yeah. You went to you went off to college. You applied for student lines, loans like all of us have. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I will be forever paying student loans. That's just something that I accept. But I, I was so lucky to, to, you know, to be able to go off to college. And, um, you know, if, I think my mom was the first one in my family to, to, to attend college. And then I was blessed, too. So that the Pell Grants going through that process, I know what it's like. And then mm -hmm. you went off and became a civil engineer. And then so forget everything else part of this what you know forget about the policy and everything mm -hmm. else with this interview. Everybody really just wants to know how you met David. Oh. <laughs> how did I meet my husband? Okay, so we're college 
uh, sweethearts. So we're at the college cafeteria, and there he is uh, speaking to one of my friends, and I went over and joked with him because uh, it's a long story, but I was actually doing an internship here in McLean, Virginia at the Uh time. And he was here visiting a friend, and they were supposed to come to a New Year's party that we had in the home. And I guess they had gotten lost coming there and never ended up um, coming to the party. So then when I went back to University of Missouri, Rolla, that's where um, both of us were studying engineering. He was studying electrical engineering, and I was studying civil engineering. I ran into him in the cafeteria, and so I was kind of teasing him about that. Like, wow, thanks a lot. You know, you're all the way up in Virginia, and you don't even stop by and say hi to me. And so I guess he was a little smitten after that for me. <laughs> oh. oh, he was smitten for you. Okay. Yeah, he was smitten. He had to work it a little bit, Ryan, before he could win me over. But you know what? Best decision I ever made as an adult was marrying David Miller. I still wake up every morning and have to pinch myself to make sure I'm not dreaming. Yeah, your husband's a great guy, and I like him a a lot. And he really is. And so uh, I feel the same about my wife, and that's just uh, the best thing that's ever happened to me was her. So there's, you know, to every every you know decent man there's the uh the woman right there behind him that makes a decent man so uh, i'm i'm right there then you three then you two had three children together and mm-hmm. you moved to maryland you built a home and have you have you've always been up in uh in the darnstown area um that that region no so uh, my husband and i moved here in 1990 and uh we lived in gaithersburg so right off of um, Game Preserve Road, yep. um, I, don't, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that. So that actually is within Congressional District 6 right now. So we lived there for about you know, 11, 12 years, and then we moved to Darnstown in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, um, this is uh, where we, we've been here um, you know, since 2003 in Darnstown. So in your professional career, uh, I remember that you and I talked about you had worked for Montgomery County government. What was the function there? Sure. So I worked in all different capacities, but before I left, I was primarily involved with the planning, design, uh, construction of major capital projects, um, be it, you know, highway projects, uh, sidewalks, bicycle facilities, uh, transit-related facilities. So it's got to do with uh, horizontal construction, not vertical construction. So, um, you know, I, didn't, I was not involved with any buildings, nothing like that. It's mostly uh, transportation-related horizontal construction. So mm-hmm. what I did was a lot of it was the planning aspect of it, right? So you need to first do a planning study. We need to justify whether that project is worthy of investing money into it to make sure, you know, whether or not we're going to build that project when it competes with other priority projects. So our job was to convince the county council and the county executive, yes, this is a very worthy project and we should move forward on it. So that's what I was primarily involved in. So while working for the county, you had the the opportunity to work with with Ike Leggett. Is that right? I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. Well, and of course, Ike is retiring as our county executive. And so there's a that's another big raise, and I went to a forum yesterday with all six of the county executive candidates, and I'll be keeping an eye on that. 
But, uh, you know, my hat is off to, to Ike Leggett for his many years of public service to Montgomery County. And I'm sure it was a pleasure working with him and learning and and following him. And uh, the county has grown significantly in the last 12 years. And I'm I'm relatively new to Montgomery County, having lived most of my life and some of my adult life in Western Maryland. But I love being in Montgomery County. There's a lot of energy here. There's actually a synergy and between, you know, the businesses and uh, with with what's going on with kind of the restaurant scene. We love going to Bethesda and living here in North Potomac. One of the best things that we are grateful for, one of the most important is our public school system. You're probably familiar with Travilla mm-hmm. Elementary, which is mm-hmm. inside of the district. Um, we had two kids, who, one who attends there and another who attends Robert Frost. And we, we have truly the, the, some of the best public school systems, uh, in, I mean, the system in the country and the very best teachers. And as a state delegate, you have a lot of hands-on experience working with that. And when you first ran and you first decided, you got into politics, and according to your website, um, the what was the impetus behind your drive into politics was the Bush v. Gore election. We all remember it. I was in high school at the time. I believe I was in, let's see, 10th grade. Oh, boy, that's a long time ago. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so – and then it was, of course, decided by the Supreme Court, and mm-hmm. you, on, on your website you said that democracy needed you, and you wanted not just to be a bystander, but you wanted to get engaged. So you got involved in the process, and when I first got involved in the process, I was so gung-ho, and then, I hate to say it, but politics, it changes over time, and then you kind of become hardened to some of the drive-by politics that we see. And we're hoping that leaders like yourself and many others that are running for public office can be able to change this this culture. And mm-hmm. and I hate to say it, uh, Delegate Miller, I've become a bit cynical with our politics, but there's a lot going on at the national level that has kind of imbued some cynicism within me. And I'm, I, I, I'll freely admit that, but I have hope. I have big hope. But you got involved in 2010 you decided to run. You got elected to state delegate and District 15, which, by the way, is, I believe, the best district in, in the state. Uh, <laughs> we have the best representatives, Senator Feldman, yourself, and Kathleen Dumais and David Frazier Hidalgo. So then you got reelected. When you were in the House of Delegates, you often talk about mo- many of your bills. They've, they've come out of committee. They get passed, and you – You've been a dynamic legislator. What are some of those most proud accomplishments that you've taken on in the House of Delegates? Sure. Well, Ryan, I think um, public office is a great instrument to create positive change for our community. You know, you talked a little bit about the cynicism and all, and I hear you, and I know many people are feeling that right now with what's happening at the national level. But I always remember what President Clinton once said, There's nothing wrong in America that can't be cured by what's right with America. And what's right with America are are those activists who get out every single day and devote their energy, time, and expertise to push the needle further toward the progressive side, toward justice, toward equity, toward peace. I am so grateful for people like that. And there are so many of them that do this each and every single day. And it starts with the precinct officials. It starts with the members of the Democratic Central Committee. It starts with the activists that go help other candidates get elected. These are the unsung heroes in our you know, fight for democracy. These are the soldiers on the ground for our democracy. And that's why 
I, you know, it's very important to me that I remember this and that I'll continue to fight the good fight because it's not over. You know, yes, it's no, disappointing no. to see some of the things we're seeing, but as I always say, the road to progress is always under construction. There is yeah. no final destination. You have to get up each, uh, you know, each and every single day and roll up your sleeves and fight towards it. So what I remember, um, you know, what's most important to me when I walk in and represent the people, I mean, it's a great privilege to do this, number one. But I'm there, I want to be there for the voices that are forgotten, the people that have been marginalized, the, you know, the families that have been cast aside, the ones who are struggling the most. Much of my legislation has been related to people that have faced tremendous obstacles in life. Yeah. In fact, majority of the legislation I introduce comes directly from constituents who come to me, share their stories, and how government is not working for them. And I want them to know government is going to work for them, and that's what I'm there to fight that for them. So, one of, you know, a lot of my legislation has to do with victims of domestic abuse, um, children that have been sexually assaulted, um, you know, children that are exposed to toxics and chemicals and tobacco and other, um, you know, stuff that's out there that isn't good for them to protect children and families. That's where primarily my focus has been. And, um, it, it, you know, and it's quite humbling when people come to you and share their stories because unless they share it, I don't know as a legislator how I can help them, but I know it takes a lot of courage to open up your heart, to share a darkest moment in, in one's life, hoping to create positive change for the rest of Marylanders. And, you know, that's how it works. It's, it's people coming to me and us sitting together at a table trying to come up with solutions for people we'll never meet. Yeah, yeah. I And I'm... I've witnessed that firsthand. Um, and so I remember us sitting down and we talked about a piece of legislation and we did our best. And although it did not make it through, um, there's, I think there's other opportunities, but that's the way that the legislative process works. And so here we are today in the present and you've decided to run for one for Congress and Congress, man, their approval rating is, is not that it's not that high, but right. there's there's a, a real sense of optimism that I see, and you're you're facing off against some 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 heavy hitters, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a guy that is willing to spend fifteen million dollars or more who ran in another district, and I will say that what Democrats are telling me that your top two contenders, they're two people who um, I think they they both have uh, they they want to see the they want to see progress in Washington, and they want to put their ideas to the test. They do not, however, live in the district. That's important to say. Um, and you don't have to live in the district to represent it here in the state of Maryland or as a as a member of Congress. You don't have to live in your district. But I think living in the district, you you can get a better sense of what those needs are. And I think that's important for people to understand that you live inside of the district. You live right in 
Darnstown, and it's part of the 6th Congressional District. Um, so walk us through, what, how did you arrive at the decision to, to run for this office? How did, how did you arrive there? Well, I, I saw the positive change of serving as a delegate for the people of District 15 can bring to people's lives. Right, And I'm very confident with what we're doing at the Maryland General Assembly. We have terrific legislators who work together to bring you know, great progress to our state. Um, you know, that's why the schools in our um, state are oftentimes in the top five as the best public school system in the nation. This is the reason why we have the highest percentage of PhDs and engineers that live in the region. We have, you know, some of the highest uh, income per capita in the nation. We have a great state here. This didn't just happen magically, Ryan. It happened because we made it happen together from the residents that live here to the people that we elected to serve them. And that's how it happens, right? So I'm looking at the national level, and I'm like, wow, you're right. It is um, hyper-partisan up there. Not much progress is taking place. So I say, you know, as an engineer and the way I've been trained, I'm, I try to find solutions where I go. So I'm looking at the national level. I'm like, there's a lot of problems there. I think we need some solutions. And so here is a, you know, incredible opportunity that the seat became open because Congressman John Delaney decided not to seek reelection. So I looked around and I thought, you know what, <clears throat> I think I'll be really good at being able to take on this opportunity. I've served the people. I've invested in the community. The community has invested in me and gave me this great opportunity to serve them as a delegate. And I hope that they'll trust me yet again to be able to serve them, um, you know, to be their next congresswoman. So um, I believe I have the qualifications. I believe that I have the earnest and sincerity in me to want to help people. I've always been about the people. I've spent my almost my entire adult career being a public servant. I'm not in it for profit. I'm in it for the people. And that's important that you're not in it for profit. Um, and that's often what we talk about the culture of Washington, where members of Congress, they go to Congress. And of course, it's, there's nothing wrong, let's say, per se, of, of leaving Congress. And then, you know, if they have a business that your business continues to grow. But we see members of Congress go to Congress, and then suddenly they, they, they have extra zeros to their net worth. And that's it's interesting to me. Um, and, you know, I look at Donald Trump, and I think, this is a guy who ran for president. It was unexpected. This was the uh, this unrealistic story of how he got elected, and yet he's benefit, benefiting um, off the backs of Americans when he's his properties are being frequented by foreign leaders, and there's the whole emoluments clause that is in question at this mm-hmm. time. And and that's that's not really the kind of the leadership I'm looking at, and I'm thinking uh, there's something fishy here. And I, I got to tell you, um, Delegate Miller, that the absurd amount of money in politics these days, what happened to the regular citizen being able to contribute and being able to affect elections by donating 20 or 30 or maybe 50 bucks out of their pocket? And that might be the most somebody can donate because they they have a budget to meet. They have kids to send to college. They have to put food on the table. I want to be able to donate – You know, uh, I want to be able to use my wallet to influence an election or at least put a candidate that I believe has the best values, but – 
we're seeing absurd amounts of money that are being spent on these congressional races. And I look at it and I'm like, is this really what our founders had intended for the state of our republic? I'm not sure that's what I'm not sure that's how the original founders saw our country. You're, I couldn't agree with you more, Ryan. Um, you know, public office belongs to the people. And the more you get the people invested in this seat, the better it is for our democracy. It's not for any one individual to write themselves a $15 million check and say, okay, I'm going to be your next congressperson. That's not what it's about. It's, it's about public office is something you earn, not something you buy. Right. I, Number two, your representative should be someone that lives in your district. My goodness, you know, how are you going to know what the challenges are and, you know, the people that you run into, your neighbors, the schools that your kids go to, unless you actually live here? I think that is really fundamental to having a representative, to have them live in the district. Now, of course, you know, Congressional District 6 in the past, uh, the people that have emerged candidates in the general election for the past couple of cycles have been people that don't live in the district. But I really believe that if the voters are presented with a qualified candidate that lives in the districts, that has devoted their time and energy into the district, I have confidence in the people of the 6th District that they're going to elect the right person to represent them come uh, June 26th. Delegate Miller, there's one thing that – well, there's many things missing at the federal level, but specifically, let's talk about Maryland. The, mm-hmm. the Maryland delegation is missing one big factor, and I think we both have no illusion as to what that is. Where are our female elected officials uh, at the federal level? I mean it's, it's, it's pretty evident that we look at it and we say, okay, we have no females in our federal delegation, and yet Maryland is considered to be one of the most progressive states in our union. There's a problem here, right? I mean I, I see it as a problem. Well, I, I believe um, this is the first time in 45 years, Ryan, that Maryland does not have a female representative in their federal delegation. Now, there's a couple of things about the federal delegation I'd like to talk about when I say Please. diversity. Nine of the federal delegation members have a background in law. That's what they studied. You know, hey, that's great. One of them happens to be not just with that background, but a very uh, wealthy, successful businessman. And one other is a physician. So we take a look at the, you know, the whole demographics of our federal delegation. I think we need to have a lot more diversity. Number one, in professional background, I'm an engineer. So I, I bring a whole different perspective to the delegation if, if the voters would elect me. Two, you're right. We do not have female representation at the federal level. That's a problem with our democracy when you don't have the voice of 51% of the population being heard at the table. We need to bring diversity from different walks of life. My life as an immigrant, the struggles that I've been through as a middle class person, those are unique things and unique perspective that I bring to the table as well. Then comes you know, ethnicity and so many different levels of diversity should be brought to the table, Ryan. Over and over, I'll say that our democracy is going to be the strongest when we have the greatest amount of diversity in our elected people. Yeah, I agree. I I think that looking at our delegation, um, 
I think most people, and I'm just going to put the cards on the table because that's what we do and sometimes get myself in trouble, but that's all right. I will say that uh, is is Maryland's delegation really in need of another white male? I mean, I don't mean to say that. I just look at the optics of it and I say, where is the diversity? That's what makes America great, truly. I mean, the the, the melting pot of who we are, and I look at it and I say, you know, Aruna Miller, she's not running because she's a woman and she doesn't use the, you know, she doesn't pull out the woman card and say, you should elect me because of this reason. I think we're all looking around and saying, we have qualified women who are running for office at the federal level. Why not give it a shot? So I'm, you know, I'm looking at this race and having grown up uh, Delegate Miller in Western Maryland, there, and when this district was redistricted from, I guess, its original boundaries, it's, it's gone through a couple of cycles, but back in 12, 2012, there, it was a, a wide swath of Montgomery County was uh, was taken and placed inside of the Congressional District 6. So there seems to be a dichotomy that has formed where Western Maryland, which is considered Garrett, Allegheny, and I would say most of Washington County, um, feels somewhat, I say, separated from Montgomery and portions of Frederick County. And Western Maryland voters see Montgomery County as fundamentally different from them. So where where do we bridge the gap there? Sure. So um, there's no doubt there's different issues that Western Maryland is facing from, let's say, Montgomery County or Frederick City. Absolutely. And the only way that you get to know all of this, Ryan, is by going and meeting with voters. And I've been doing that for the past nine months, going up to Western Maryland, meeting with folks, hearing what their issues are. And this is what I'm hearing. Number one, it's exactly what you said. They feel like they're the forgotten ones. And, you know, I really felt terrible when I heard that for the first time because it resonated with me, within me, because I've had those feelings. And I think as individuals, we've all had that, no matter whether it's in personal life, professional life, social life, wherever it can be, where you feel isolated, you feel like you're forgotten. As soon as they said that, it hit me. And I'm like, look, I can tell you that as a representative for the 15th District, I hear stories of people that feel like they're the forgotten ones, and those are the people that I immediately run towards and want to help. And so when I heard people say that in Western Maryland, I also understood that the best way that I can help them, look, I don't know everything about Western Maryland. I'm there to listen to them. I'm there to hear what their concerns are. And what the stories that they shared with me is that there are single parents struggling to work two or three jobs, but they can't work because public transit stops at 4.30 p.m. How can they get to their next job? Where do they pick up the kids in childcare? That's a problem. The opioid epidemic is a problem there. And, you know, how do we deal with that? Where are the jobs for the people in Western Maryland? These are the stories that I'm hearing. And I assured them that as I heard them, that I will be there working along beside them, doing whatever I can, should I have the honor of representing them. These are stories that I've heard even in District 15. It's not that different. They're more unique um, circumstances perhaps in Western Maryland, but people being forgotten is a story that I hear all the time, and it's something that is very important to me and a priority for me to be able to be the voice for those like that. And growing up there, I can tell you, it's 
it's a Republican district. I mean, it's it's very Republican territory, but I think that there's instead of partisan politics, there's in, a member of Congress can work to bring bipartisan solutions, work with both Republicans or Democrats, whomever is electing us. And you know, we had many years of Roscoe Bartlett, and then Congressman Delaney won the office. And you know, to, to Congressman Delaney's credit, he has worked across the aisle on many important projects with veterans for mm-hmm. infrastructure. And mm-hmm. looking at Western Maryland's infrastructure, growing up there, I know I can tell you that in Interstate 81 needs to be updated desperately. Mm-hmm. The stretch between West Virginia and Pennsylvania, there's about a 12-mile stretch that when it backs up or there's an accident – we need to desperately expand that roadway system. We need, we need to take a look, too, at there's a big crisis happening, and it's a public health crisis. And you've talked about this, opioids. It's a major problem all over the place, but we see it in rural communities where I every time I look at the obituaries up in the Herald Mail, the newspaper, my hometown newspaper, Aruna, I tell you, every time I look at that, Almost every cycle I see another young person, and we all know what it is, and it's happening. That's a yeah. major problem, and you've talked it about is. that, and I'd like for you to speak to that today, this the, this ongoing opioid crisis that we're all suffering from. And we all know someone that has suffered from that problem. Absolutely. Ryan, I think there's you know so many layers to the opioid em- epidemic. It's destroying communities and families. Now, I think one of the most fundamental things that we need to recognize is that drug addiction is not a moral failure. It is a disease. That's one. We have to treat it like a disease. Two, we have to remove also the stigma associated with individuals that are suffering from this to seek help because many times people are suffering privately and they don't share that they have this problem, which is the biggest reason why we can't help the individuals unless they come forward with it. And I think this is something that's touching everyone's lives. And you're right, you open up the paper and you read over and over again how many people's lives are being lost as a result of this. I mean, I can tell you in Annapolis, I've had, most recently, my last session here, I had an individual that came in to talk to me about a whole separate issue, uh, about getting funding for a project, and then she broke down and started crying. She said 10 days ago she had just buried her daughter, who was 24 years old because of the opiate epidemic. And it's heartbreaking to hear these stories. And I can tell you in my own personal life, I've been touched by it. My brother-in-law, you know, just a middle-class guy, middle-aged guy going along in life, I had no idea that he was suffering from uh, addiction to opioids. And last September, he ended up having an overdose and dying from it. Mm -hmm. So I know the pain that they're feeling in Western Maryland as a result of the opioid epidemic. And we need to come up with solutions. And so, again... We have to treat it like a public health issue, not a criminal justice issue. And we have done a lot of progress in the General Assembly trying to make sure that we can um, provide funding out there. Um, You know, we passed the HOPE Act, which is the Heroin and Opioid Prevention Effort Treatment Act. 
Mm-hmm. Where basically mm-hmm. we provide facilities uh, for um, locations so people can seek help there. We made sure naloxone and other overdose reversing medication is available in emergencies for people to get access to. We put limits on the amount of opioids that can be prescribed by doctors. Th- this isn't over. We're going to have to get up every single day and work towards trying to come up with solutions for this. And it's going to require federal, state, and local officials to get together and work together in tandem. I agree. You have been endorsed by some heavy hitters in this race. One is Emily's List. You've you've got the Maryland Teachers. Uh, you've been endorsed by the Sierra Club. And you have been endorsed by, let's see, Terry Learman. And I be, I'm sure you've – I miss quite a few – um, uh, but these are just a few, just a few off the top of my head. So people are looking at you and they're saying, wow, she's, she's got some serious chops and there's some big name heavy hitter groups that are coming out and, and backing your campaign. And so, and, and that's clearly resonating with our friends over on the Republican side, Delegate Miller. And I'll, I'll tell you why they've been running. They've been, uh, man, they've been staying up at night. Well, I'm not sure what happened, but we were having some <clears throat> technical difficulties with that. So we'll pick up at a later time with the interview. Unfortunately, these things happen. Uh, I'm not always sure what happened, but nonetheless, uh, we'll have the interview on the podcast format, and that'll be out soon. Sorry about that, folks. And we're going to go ahead and wrap it up tonight. 